Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. So we're carrying on with our series on Leviticus. So um, this is, I think, week four now that we're in. How many of you guys have decided to try reading through Leviticus recently? Okay, there's a few of you. How's it going? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was interesting that Regan brought it up as well, that it's, it's not an easy book to really read. It's not a fun book all the time, especially when you've just come out of Exodus, which has all these amazing big things, and then you go into Leviticus, and it's like, oh. Um, last year, I was actually trying to read through Leviticus because I was reading through the Bible, and um, there's only 27 chapters. It should take you like a month. <laughs> It, it took me about three. <laughs> I won't lie, it's not good. But um, I think part of it is that, that we, we tend to look at Leviticus like this big book of do's and don'ts. And it is a big book of do's and don'ts. And you have to do everything correctly and rightly and everything. So it's quite hard going. And I was kind of slugging my way through, really struggling. And I was just like, Lord, why? Why do I have to read this book? The law no longer applies to me this way. I don't have to make sacrifices. I'm allowed to eat pork and eat clothing. You know, not eat clothing, wear clothing. Please don't eat clothing. <laughs> I mean, I can, it's true, there's no law about that one. But um, you know, I can wear clothing that's of multiple fibers and things like that. So why is this relevant to me? Why do I have to do this? And what God really revealed to me is that Leviticus is, the book, it is a book that just demonstrates God's love for his people. And while it's hard to read, it's honestly one of my favorite books because it just demonstrates it so beautifully. You see, in Leviticus, what God is showing is that he, people couldn't approach him because of his holiness. At the end of Exodus, the people of Israel end up at Mount Sinai and God's, God's cloud settles over the mountain. And it scared the people and it was, there was rumbling and trembling of the ground. And when God spoke, it was just loud and there was lightning. And God says to Moses, do not let the people come up here because this ground is holy. And so the people couldn't approach him and Moses had to consecrate the people before they could approach him, but then they were too scared to approach him. And so what God does is he gives them the law and the law is what allows him to dwell amongst his people. Because up until this point, he's had to be separate from them because they are unholy and he is holy. And so Leviticus allows a way for God to dwell amongst his people. And he comes down from the mountain and he puts his presence inside this Ark of the Covenant that sits in the middle of the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp of Israel. All the, the tribes were arranged around the tabernacle. And so God was able to dwell among his people. Can you imagine, this is God, creator of the universe, omnipresent, omnipotent, and he comes and he makes himself, puts himself inside the holy of holies so that he can be with his people and not destroy them because of his holiness. That is love, that is love. And so Leviticus, while being a tough book to read, it's not a slog anymore because when I read it, I see God's love demonstrated to his people. I don't see it as this, this horrible list of rules and regulations from a you know, fussy God <laughs> or a strict God. I see it as a demonstration of love. 
And so I hope tonight as we dive, dive a little deeper into Leviticus that you'll see this as well. So we're talking tonight about holiness is in the blood. All right. Now there's a lot of blood in Leviticus. Everything was bathed in blood. The temple, everything, they flicked blood on everything. The priest's clothing, they flicked blood on it. So uh, we're going to look at this idea. So Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted and will not be accepted. And anyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. So part of the reason I chose the scripture is because its subtitle is God is holy, the Lord is holy. And that's what we're kind of talking about tonight. So the first thing, I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So the first thing we really need to examine is this idea of holiness, right? So I grew up in the church, was saved at four, baptized at six, and so I grew up with a familiar jargon, right? Holiness, glory, sin, iniquity, all these like words, redemption, atonement. And I'm a big reader, so I have a habit of inferring meaning from context. I very seldom actually open up a dictionary to check what a word really means. I just kind of get a gist. Never ask me what a word means. <laughs> I honestly am not very good at telling you, but I, I can infer meaning. And the problem is that often we actually approach the Bible this way. We approach our Christianity this way. And um, even when you've, if you, whether you've grown up in the church or you've entered it in, in adulthood, very seldom do we actually examine these words to find out what they mean. So for, for me, holiness always implies moral righteousness, moral correctness, moral purity. And here's an interesting word, uh, not a word, fact. The uh, word holiness actually doesn't have moral anything in it. So the word for holiness is kadosh. Thank you, Greg, for teaching me to say it properly. I sound very academic. <laughs> okay, kadosh, and it means to cut, like I kadosh my bread. Please don't say that, it's probably not, but it helps me understand it. <laughs> okay, so it means to cut. And when we look at God, this means to be cut off, separate, distinct, and unique. God is separate, distinct, and unique. So when we talk about his holiness, this is what we're talking about. There's nothing about morality strictly in the definition of holiness. When we do foundations, the first thing that we actually go through in the foundations discussion, which you should do if you haven't, is that we talk about God as creator. And in Genesis, this is the first thing we discover about God, right? Is that he created. Now God wasn't bored and just kind of found some arts and crafts stuff and whoops, there was the galaxy. It actually tells us that God spoke. Lerico mentioned this um, in worship, that God spoke and things came into being. And when he formed Adam and Eve, what he did when he formed Adam, 
because he breathed his life into him. And what this tells us is that God is the source of all life. Nothing that exists exists outside of God because he is the source of everything. All life throughout the world, throughout the galaxy, throughout the universe is because of him. And so when you look at holiness, this is what makes God unique, that he is the source of all life. Now when this is important to us because we are unholy, right? And the reason that we are is because when Adam and Eve sinned and they disobeyed God, they brought sin and death into the world. And everything became tainted with the sin and death. The ground was cursed, animals were cursed, we were cursed. It's a very dark and very emo thought, but from the moment we're conceived, we're already starting to die. It's inevitable, our mortal bodies are going to perish. All right, and that's the taint that we carry, it's the thing that we carry from, from what Adam and Eve did and from being tainted by death. So this means that God's presence is very dangerous to us because of this taint that we have, because we are unholy, we're unable to enter his presence because he is pure life. And life and death cannot exist in that same space together. So we need to be holy so that we can enter into God's presence without it being dangerous to us. It's not dangerous because God is a mean God or an angry God or a horrible God or because he doesn't like us. It's purely because of his very nature. And this is why God has done so much for us so that we can enter into his presence. Okay, so back to Leviticus, because this is about Leviticus. There's two kinds of purity that we see in Leviticus. There is ritual purity, which has everything to do with the, you know, not eating um, animals, not touching dead things, bodily functions, um, touching the dead, and all those things. So these are ritual purity things. It's not about morality. I know when I read Leviticus as a young child, I was very offended that as a woman, I'd have to go cleanse myself once a month. I'm like, I didn't choose this. (laughs) Nobody chooses this. Um, And it made me feel like, how can that be sinful? But it was because I misunderstood the difference between ritual purity and moral purity. But it's just that these things represent death in some way, in some form. It's, It's symbolic and therefore can't be in God's presence. It represents life and death. But then there is moral purity spoken about in Leviticus. And this is all the rules that we know. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, look after the poor, all these things. But what Leviticus shows us is that in order for us to be in God's presence, the taint that we carry has to be dealt with. Justice must be met, and this is why there's all that sacrifice. And in Leviticus 17, it actually talks about how the source of life is blood. And this is why the sacrifices required blood, because the blood created atonement for us, it covered. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. One of the other things Leviticus shows us is that my holiness, holiness covers every single aspect of my life. It's one of the things that I don't think all the Israelites got. Jesus even reprimanded the Pharisees for this, that they did all the right things, but their hearts were not in it. So it's not just about my outward behavior that makes me holy, it's an inward thing. It's an inward positioning of my heart that I have to be holy. 
Jesus expounded on this himself when he said, you know, the law says don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even think of a woman in the wrong way or a man, you've committed adultery already in your heart. And that just demonstrated further that it's about the inside presenting of my heart. In the scripture we read earlier, it said, be holy, right? Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So in order for me to dwell with God, I need to be made pure and holy again, set apart from the things of sin and death. This is atonement. I have to, my sins have to be atoned for. Atonement means to cover. And we see this for the first time with Adam and Eve, right? They get expelled from the garden because they've sinned. And God goes and he kills an animal, sheds its blood, and then he covers their nakedness. And that's where we see the first time atonement being demonstrated to us. And then he brings the book of Leviticus, which is more in-depth um, and more thorough. There's this thing in the Bible that's called, um, well, when you study the Bible, it's called progressive revelation, right? So it's that an aspect of God or a truth is... Um, revealed to us in stages. As we grow in our understanding of God, he reveals more to, about himself that way. And so holiness is one of these, these things. So we start with Adam and Eve. We see the demonstration of atonement. We see Leviticus, massive demonstration of atonement. And then in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees a vision of God. He sees God on the throne, and he sees the angels flying around him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he's suddenly very aware of his own lack of holiness, of how impure he is. And he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. And one of the angels takes a coal from the altar and puts it on his lips and says, your sins have been forgiven, your guilt is covered, and your sins have been forgiven. And this is the first time that we actually see holiness, God's holiness coming and transforming someone. In Leviticus, it was always my taint, my sin had to be transferred onto a sacrifice and atonement made. And that made me allowed to be in God's presence. But now what Isaiah is seeing is that actually God's holiness can come to me and remove my sin, remove the taints and transform me to be in his presence. In Ezekiel, it's further expanded on Ezekiel 47, um, a very, very detailed couple of chapters about the new temple, but Ezekiel sees God's presence fill this temple, and then he sees the stream start to run from out of the temple, and it starts shallow, and it gets deeper and deeper, and it starts to run into all the world. And what he describes is that it runs into, sea, into the seas and it turns the seas to fresh water and more fish live in it. And everywhere it touches the ground on the sides, trees start to grow and these trees have fruit and the fruit never dies. And it's showing this, this, this presence from the presence of God flows this river of life. And everywhere it goes, it brings more life. It removes the death and the sin and the taint, and it brings life. So this is great, wonderful theology. What has it got to do with us? Matthew 27. So Jesus has been interrogated by Pontius Pilate, and he's now been handed over. The, the, the Jews have said, we want to kill him. Give us the serial murder, it's fine. 
kill Jesus instead. And this is what happens. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered a whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, oh, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus is called the lamb that was slain before the beginning of time. And he's not called the lamb because he's meek and mild. He's anything but. He's called the lamb because he was the final sacrifice, the last sacrifice that had to be made. This is why we no longer have to do this because Jesus did it for us. He was the perfect sacrifice. No blemish, no sin, no taint, absolutely nothing wrong, and 100% innocent, did not deserve to die, yet he stood there. And the scholars talk about this, the symbolism of everything Jesus went through. And with the putting on of the crown of thorns on his head, think back to Leviticus. What did we do when we wanted to bring a sacrifice? We laid our hands on its head and then we killed it. They laid their hands on Jesus' head. They did it to mock him, but what they were doing was transferring the sins of the world onto this head of Jesus Christ. And then they led him away to crucify him. They led him away to die, to bleed, Crucifixion was one of the most horrendous deaths that you could die, and many say it still is. We don't like looking at the crucifixion. It's painful, it's messy, it's bloody, but we need to remember what Jesus went through because he did it for you. He did it so that we can enter into the presence of God unhindered by anything that is on us. When we accept Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made in the faith that we have in him, we are no longer tainted by sin and death. And we're allowed to enter into his presence unfettered. When Jesus returned to his disciples, what he said is, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is why when Nereko spoke, he spoke about the tearing of the veil in the temple. Remember I said God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, but after Jesus rose from the dead, there was no longer any reason for God's presence to be confined in the Holy of Holies. And so he left and the veil tore. Where did he go? He went to us. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We carry God's presence with us. And Jesus said to his disciples, out of you, living waters will flow. This is important for us to understand because it changes the way that we show up in the world. When you walk into a room, you carry God's presence inside of you. It's not just something that rubbed off on you on Sunday because worship was great or somebody prayed for you and it was amazing and you felt his presence. It lives inside of you because you are the temple of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And more than that, out of you flow streams of living water from the living God. Where you go, you bring life, the life of God. 
You walk with authority. You walk with confidence because you know what God has done for you on the cross and you know who you are and what you carry. One of the things that really struck me about what Jesus did for us, the Bible talks about us in the, the second resurrection that we will receive new bodies. I don't know what they're going to look like. It doesn't, I hope good, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Greg says amazing. I'm hoping so as well. I hope they just work, um, which they will. The scriptures actually tell us that these bodies that we receive are immune to death. There's no more sickness, no more death, no more tears. Jesus is already resurrected and he, he reveals himself to his disciples in this body, but he still carries the scars. What Jesus did on the cross for us was no small thing because the scars that he got going through this, he will carry for the rest of time. For all eternity, the scars on his wrists, on his ankles, where he was stabbed with the spear, the thrashes on his back, and the crown of thorns on his head. He carries them for eternity. Dealing with sin was not an easy feat. It was huge and it carried eternal implications. This is why we do communion. This is why we need to remember what Jesus did for us. It was a big thing and it reverberates throughout all eternity. And that should make you feel loved. I hope you feel loved when you think about what Jesus did. The scripture that we read spoke about an acceptable sacrifice. So it talks about when you want to make a peace offering to God. And the peace offering was for fellowship with God. It was one of those sacrifices that wasn't about purity, it was actually about wanting to be with God. And there was this beautiful ritual around it, and it was a feast. And you got to eat the food that you sacrificed, and you got to be with God, and to fellowship with him. So God has made me holy through what Jesus has done, right? That holiness is there, it is part of my identity. When I become a child of God, I am made holy and that is who I am. But the scripture said, be holy. And the word be means to exist, right? So there's a continuing thing that has to keep happening. God has given me holiness and I'm made holy, but I have to continue to be holy. There's a thing that I have to keep doing, right? For that to carry on, make sense? My English is Englishing. Okay. There is nothing that I need to do to earn holiness. It has been done for me. There is no amount of works that I can do, no amount of right things to actually be holy. I have to accept what Jesus has done for me. But I do have to continue to live in holiness. This is my responsibility. There are things that you need to do. Holiness is a standard that we need to live, live in.
Exodus 19, now therefore you will indeed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So for us to remain holy, we need to obey God and we need to keep his covenants. Very, very simple. And for me, I just want to kind of talk about three ways that we can stay holy and live holy lives. And the first one is a lifestyle of repentance. This isn't that flippant thing of kind of climbing into bed at night and kind of going, oh Lord, whatever I did today, just forgive me. It's, you know, I can't think of it, I don't know what I did, you know, I didn't do anything big. Um, so just, you know, kind of clean the slate. Living a lifestyle of repentance means that I am intentionally examining my life before God. And I'm saying, Lord, where in my life am I not in alignment with you? Where in my life am I not surrendered to you? And where in I'm not agreeing with the things that you say? It's an intentional thing. And the beauty is that confession of our sins does beautiful things for us. It sets us free and it breaks the, the chains of shame on our lives. See, shame tells you lies about yourself, like you're not worthy, you're not pure, you're not holy, you're not good enough. You'll never get this right. And it keeps us bound in a place of darkness where God can't move in our lives because we've stopped him, because we're believing lies. And so we have to, when we confess our sins, it's not about humiliating us, it's not about trying to make us small, it's about bringing us freedom because we confess our sins and God comes and he forgives us. And the Bible tells us he remembers our sin no more and it is without regrets. And when we're struggling with a repetitive sin, God says, find someone who is righteous and let them stand and pray with you. So that's when I confess to other people. So they can stand with me. And it says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then we find freedom. But I have to cultivate this lifestyle of every day I'm examining myself because I want to be in God's presence. I want to be an acceptable sacrifice to him. I want my sacrifice to him to be acceptable because I'm living the way that he's asked me to and he's empowered me to do it through his grace. The other way that I live holy is that I need to be transformed. I need to transform my heart and my mind um, to be more like Christ. And this doesn't come from striving and trying harder. You know, very often, particularly when we mess up, we're just like, I'll do better next time, Lord, I promise. I'll do better. I'll make sure I do the things that I need to do. And yet we keep doing, we keep doing worse. And it's like slipping down the slope and we just can't stop and we keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And that's because it's not about my external behavior. It's about the positioning of my heart. God has to come in and transform me. Right thinking produces right living. I have to be transformed. And the only way I can be truly transformed from the inside out is through the presence and the word of God. I have to be daily in the word and the presence of God. And you cannot separate these two things 
because the word was given to us to reveal God to us and it's the way that he speaks to us. So I have to have the word. I can't just have the presence. And I can't just have the word and not the presence because it's the Holy Spirit that reveals God to me through his word. My biological dad is not, not a Christian and um, when we first met, he knew I was and he'd read this book called um, Living the Bible in One Year. Uh, living according to the Bible one year. And the guy who did it, I think he was an atheist, and he found it fine trying to live by the Bible of the Old Testament, because Leviticus, <laughs> it's easy, there's rules, there's regulations, there's consequences, it's very laid out. But he didn't really know what to do with the New Testament, because the New Testament, is, God reveals this to us that it's not just about my behavior, I can't just behave well. I have to understand, I have to, it has to be a heart thing, and my heart is transformed by that. So I have to have the presence of God and the word of God in my life so that I can be transformed from the inside out. This is why little daily scriptures do not really help us because I'm not engaging in God when I'm reading his word. I'm just finding a cute little catchphrase that's gonna help me feel good about myself. And sometimes they're powerful, they're helpful, but it's not enough. I need to be in God's presence and I need to be in his word. The third one is casting away all idols. So now we know that idols can be physical things, right? Not just like little Buddha statues. We don't really, most of us don't do that anymore. Um, but my car, my house, any object that I have that I value more than I should, more than it's really worth. But idols can also be people, and I don't just mean celebrities. Idols can be my parents, grandparents, my spouse, my children, my friends. Anyone whose voice is louder than God's in my life is an idol. And that's a problem. And it's very difficult for us to sometimes admit that we go to our friends before we go to God. That we go to them for validation. That we go to them for love. And it's not bad to have those things, but when we're doing it before we go to God, that's a problem. Then their voice is more important than God's in your life. And the third idol I wanted to talk about is the, sort of like the idol of ideology. If you value something like capitalism, communism, socialism, being woke, it's <laughs> our favorite thing, democracy, or whatever ideology you have, culture, cultural identity, if you value these things above the culture and identity of God or any ideology that God has or speaks about the way that we should live and govern and be in community, you have an idol. You got a problem and you need to submit it to the cross. And I know that that's not easy for all of us to hear because we live in a world where, quite frankly, ideology has become the new religion. There are so many wars going on on all the social media platforms between these, these conflicting ideologies. And sometimes they're in, within the same ideology and they're fighting different sides of it. And it just brings division. We need to submit these things before God so that God's voice is loudest in our lives, that God's way is the way that we live. Mm -hmm. 
2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their mists and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. My prayer tonight is that we will understand what Jesus did for us on the cross and that it will inspire us to live the life that he's empowered us to live, that he has given to us. This life that he has given to you is a gift. It's a gift that brings freedom. It's a gift that brings family. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. As we kind of come to a close this evening, the first thing I really want to do is if you have never received the gift from Jesus, that atonement that covers your sins, as we just kind of close our eyes, if this is you and you would like to receive Jesus tonight, you want to hand over all those things that you're carrying to him. You've lived life your own way. You've done things the way you wanted to do, the way other people have told you to. And you're sitting here tonight with a heavy backpack full of regrets. And tonight you want those things to be covered by the blood of Christ so that you can stand before God without those regrets. If that's you, won't you just raise your hand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask you to do something really brave. If we could all just stand. If you raised your hand, won't you please come forward to stand here to the front, and we're going to pray with you. And can we just celebrate as they come down to the front? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Wonderful. Guys, I feel like we can do better than that. I really do. Thank you, Lord. So we're going to pray together. And if everybody can pray with us. All right. Lord Jesus, I stand before you now. And I offer you my life. Thank you that you died for me and that you wipe my sins clean. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will come and live inside of my heart and walk with me for the rest of my life. I make you Lord and Savior of my life. In your precious name, amen.